Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's February 8th, 2024, and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in the crypto space. I'm Matthew House-Barbie, and as always, I'm here with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Doing well, Matt. Uh, we are not quite at our 70k Bitcoin prediction that we made late <laughs> last year. Uh, but we are hovering around the 45k mark, which is better than a couple days ago, I will say. <laughs> it's It certainly is. I, you know, as, as every day goes by, I'm building up more and more conviction towards that uh, elusive all-time high. Um, you know, I was, <clears throat> I actually saw on Twitter, I think it was the Milk Road that, that published this, they had uh, the past three Bitcoin halvings, and they showed 90 days prior to the halving and the, the price of Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin at the time of the halving, and then the price of Bitcoin ninety days after the halving. And uh, if you want some, if you want to feel great and feel bullish, look at that chart because <laughs> I'll tell you, it looks good. Uh, so typically, like what we've seen in every single halving, actually, the run up to the halving actually is very underwhelming. And I think you know, you've got like miners that are typically like selling and capturing some profit before like the halving event happens, and then pretty much every time we've seen like a local all-time high is 90 days after the the halving event so i'm strapping in ready i'm uh i'm, I'm gearing up for that big wonderful 70k plus btc end of q3 start of q4 early holiday present let's go it's gonna be like you know you're gonna be there at thanksgiving and people are gonna be like austin you're so rich why didn't i listen to you <laughs> like i feel like a dumbass why did i buy tesla stock and not just buy bitcoin <laughs> damn it and you'll be there and your lambo parked outside it's gonna be magical it's gonna be the best thing it'll ever be, matt i have to confess it'll be the third thanksgiving in the last uh seven or eight years where that has happened and it has always been followed by a thanksgiving where I, w I had a Toyota Corolla parked in the driveway. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, who knows? As, as, we, as we always say, this time it's different, right? You know, it'll be... It'll <laughs> exactly. Be All well, right, hey, we've, we've got, got some really interesting stories uh, to dive into today. Should we get into it? Let's do it. We're going to be talking about the ETH ETF filing and some really exciting changes that are happening uh, on that front, uh, diving into the deep, dark world of AI, and uh, also some more positive news about the state of Ethereum. There's a lot of like positive ETH uh, news that we're going to be sharing today. So without further ado, let's dive straight in. The ETH ETF filings have been well underway and, you know, we've had a few delays. I think yesterday was the latest delays from the SEC on um, some of the, uh, a couple of the different um, companies that have filed for spot ETH ETFs. But something much more interesting happened. ARK21 shares, which obviously has their spot BTC uh, ETF, are also filing for an uh, Ether ETF. But they made some changes to the filing. And one of those was just to include a cash creation and redemption process, which is pretty similar to you know, the, the BTC ETF. So it looks like that's going to be the same requirement. But what was very interesting is they added some language surrounding staking. Now, 
the reason why this staking language is really interesting, at least in my opinion, um, is because, you know, it's something I've personally been wondering of whether we would start to see in some of these filings or maybe a, you know, fingers crossed post ETH spot ETF filing, we'd start to see like a staked ETH ETF. Um, so what what we're pro- what they're proposing here is that they would be allowed to stake some of the ETFs underlying ETH. Uh, they didn't mention whether the staking proceeds would actually be passed on to ETF holders, but if if they did, this would make for a pretty extremely compelling and first of its kind yield bearing crypto spot ETF. So you, you may be familiar with like um, some of the different dividend ETFs, right? Where largely it's a basket of stocks that um, provide pretty consistent and healthy dividends. And those dividend incomes that are received into the, the ETF um, are then distributed to the ETF holders. It's nice, yield-bearing, wonderful. This would be pretty amazing from an ETH perspective because not only are you able to get upside in exposure to ETH via an ETF product, which certainly in the the US comes with some nice tax uh, advantages, but it'd be yield-bearing as well. So it'd almost be like being able to stake ETH without managing the custody, etc. Now, Before you all get excited and start 100x leveraging ETH, right? This this all comes with some big caveats. So the this additional like text that's that's written um, in the 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 filing, the amendments that have been made, they're all written within parentheses. And what that typically indicates is that they're actually yet to engage the SEC about its addition, but they're kind of saying this is something we would like to include. Um, so we could, and maybe likely, we see this language removed completely um, after the discussions. But if not, you know, this paves the way for a staked ETH spot ETF, which personally, I I think is an incredibly exciting financial instrument. And as someone who regularly um, is exposed to institutional investors, let me tell you this, this would be very, very um, appetizing for the institutional investors out there that can't have kind of self-custodied access. I mean, there is a huge amount of uh, qualified custodial ETH staking services out there that generate a very significant amount of money and have significant assets under management that are exclusively um, focused on institutional investors. This is probably even more appealing to, to many of them. So I think it's super exciting. I love that we're starting to see some of this. Do I believe that this will be in the final uh, approved ARC21 shares Ether ETF? No, I don't. Um, but I'm glad that we're starting some of these conversations because if we do see that Hopefully, mid-May, the ETH ETF is is filed, um, uh, sorry, is approved, which, you know, is definitely nowhere near as straightforward as the, the BTC one. Then I think we start to have the narrative shift towards the stake to ETH ETF uh, 
which is a bit of a mouthful to say. Um, I, I will say that, <laughs> but <laughs> will will be uh, will be a really cool product uh, and be very good for ETH as a whole. Um, after what would likely be the inevitable grayscale uh, ETH E sell off that we've seen in the same sense as the grayscale BTC uh, GBTC sell off, which has now finally started to slow down, which is always mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Matt, what does this mean? Like, this is exciting in, in one respect because it, it really improves the accessibility of ETH staking, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. to institutions, to investors that maybe are taking more traditional paths to investing. What does it mean for crypto exchanges, though? Like, it makes me think of, you know, Coinbase's mission of bringing crypto to the masses, being like a real consumer product, uh, an interesting function that they offer is that you can stake ETH. If now, in order to have exposure to really the crypto that the majority of people want exposure to, which is the big ones through ETFs, and then you can even have a staked ET, uh, ETH spot ETF, what's, mm-hmm. what's the reason for your average person to go to a user-friendly crypto exchange at this point? Does it sort of become relegated to just like crypto natives at that point? Um, so I think that uh, there's a few layers to this. So first of all, you there's a few layers underneath the ETF, right? So you'll have, for example, ARK 21 shares, uh, right? You'll have, uh, alongside ARK, you'll have BlackRock and all the others. And let's say they all have this staked ETH ETF. Well, first of all, they need a qualified custodian, someone to, if it was just a spot ETH ETF, you know, they need a central exchange, whether that be a Coinbase, a Kraken, a, well, no, it's not going to be Binance, right? But like all, all of these others, uh, right? They need a place to both buy the underlying ETH uh, to, to support the holdings and back the holdings of their ETF. And they need a place to um, actually like custody that, that ETH because they're not doing it themselves outside of where Fidelity's been doing that with their Bitcoin spot ETF. Then if we get into the layer of staking, well, you know, someone needs to stake this ETH. Someone needs to run the validators. And this is where you get into the institutional grade staking services. Like I can speak for a, a Kraken, like we... We have this. We acquired a company called Stake, which is an institutional like ETH and many, many other um, uh, cryptocurrency staking product. And we have and spin up validators on behalf of our clients to actually like, you know, really stake the ETH and push back the rewards, etc. that then would be funneled in some in some way to an ETF, which would all be ran through some kind of like uh index right like for the majority uh is like cf benchmarks do this for 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 bt btc so the role of the crypto exchange this is very like i think people often lose sight that this is very bullish for for the crypto exchange and also actually in this case not just exchanges but a lot of the like institutional grade staking um and custody providers because they're going to be the ones servicing all of this for the average user um, I I don't know how much things change per se. Like, obviously, there's just going to be a lot more liquidity. Um, uh, but you know, <clears throat> in ETH and BTC, you're always going to get that anyway. But 
I think maybe what we start to see that I think would be beneficial with something like this is maybe a little bit more clarity on uh, staking products as a whole. It's not been the easiest thing to to tackle in the US in particular. Um, and, and it is a lot kind of a, more of a gray area from a regulatory standpoint. I think this could like push that a little further along and we get a little bit more clarity there. But I don't really think much many things change per se. I still think that the people buying a lot of this will largely be the institutional investors. Um, I still think that retail users will go in and stake uh, via central exchanges um, in the same way that I still think people will do it via DeFi as well. Um, you know, like, I hope that changes over, I hope more people self-custodied become and run validators and things like that in the uh, in the future. But for most people, that's not what they're, they're going to do. But I think it's a good thing for the whole of the wider crypto industry and make no mistake is, is very good for exchanges and uh, custodians as well. So because of these interdependencies between the institutions and the exchanges, this is maybe more additive than it is competitive. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. And that's what, that's what is absolutely the case with, um, with the Bitcoin ETFs, right? Because, you know, the, the reality here is that the, the ETF providers are just another big customer, you know? Uh, they are, buy, like, if, if they're taking in uh, $200 million worth of inflows on a single day of, of, of Bitcoin, like BlackRock did in the first few days, they got to buy $200 million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And where are they going to do that? Well, the only place they can do that in um, central central exchanges that both have the, uh, the, the liquidity to do that, largely all through OTC uh, kind of markets and offerings that they'll have specifically for that. And also um, they can store them within qualified custody products, which they are required to by by law so <clears throat> i think that's kind of the the piece here it is absolutely additive and not competitive um maybe you could make an argument that's like somewhat competitive on the institutional side but i i, I don't agree with it i think it's completely additive it's exciting i love yeah. it absolutely um yeah it's going to be really cool to see where this one plays out i think um <clears throat> i i i'm probably at the 60% confidence that the ETH spot ETF gets approved um, right now. And, you know, when we were talking back in, uh, when was it? November, early December of the BTC uh, spot ETF, I was like 98% sure, right? Like, so much less conviction on this one, but if it does, it'll be a, it'll be a big win. But let's dive into the next story of the day. Let's take a look at an underground site where pretty basic AI is being used to bypass KYC, know your customer, and AML, anti-money laundering measures. So we've talked a lot on this podcast about KYC and AML. These are uh, measures that exchanges, financial institutions, et cetera, et cetera, have to put into place by law to validate the individual 
that is uh, participating in transactions. So like if you've ever you know signed up for a crypto exchange, you you may recall you had to verify your ID and a bunch of uh, personal information to make sure that you were who you say you are. Uh, and also anti-money laundering measures put into place to verify the, the sources and the outflows of funds to make sure that illicit activity wasn't taking place or being washed through the crypto exchange. So these are actually pretty important filters that exist uh, in these institutions and exchanges. And now the, a simple service called OnlyFake is leveraging neural networks to create high quality fake IDs where for $15, you can get an AI generated ID and open a bank account, unban your crypto, overcome KYC and anti-money laundering measures. It's pretty bizarre, Matt, yeah. but also very predictable, right? <laughs> yep. I mean, this this among several other use cases were was stuff that we, we knew was going to be coming. Um, but it it is a worry. You know, I think people talk about like, KYC, AML, like being like, especially in crypto, being like the antithesis of crypto. I mean, it's there for a reason. Um, and like, I don't think anyone could could feasibly be pro money laundering, right? And I think like these 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 rules exist for a reason. And whether they can abuse be abused or not is is another thing. But yeah, we don't. This this is not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, no no doubt about it. They're imperfect. Um, but the, the, they definitely do serve a purpose. Uh, I think that their effectiveness and their purpose is definitely being challenged, not just by things like OnlyFake, but just in general by the, the, the rapid evolution of our space and the, and the technology behind it. Uh, but I'll tell you what, this was interesting to me. I, uh, for, for the first time in a while, I felt like I was in high school again. I was like, oh my gosh, fake IDs. <laughs> fake and IDs, then I realized yeah. <laughs> like, I, I can buy alcohol and I have no reason to <laughs> launder money. So this actually doesn't really serve much of a purpose to me. But nevertheless, yeah, um, so, so what is only fake? Uh, originally, it, it was just a Telegram account, uh, but it got shut down. So they started a new one. They got back at it. And then a publication... It just shows, never give up. Never give up. <laughs> it's, well, I find it interesting because, you know, all of this stuff is so lo-fi, right? Like, this is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about only fake, like it's this some big, super sophisticated thing. Well, you'll find out it, 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 it's, it's not really. It's literally just a Telegram account uh, that 404 Media, a news publication, decided to go into and investigate. And they released a pretty in-depth report where they tested the service and they were actually able to get past KYC measures of OKX, which is a cryptocurrency exchange. Unfortunate for them, they were the one that got picked in, yep. in this instance. Um, and they use a third-party verification service called Jumio to verify their customers' documents. Uh, this is not uncommon, right, for exchanges to use third-party verification services to everyone, uh, comply with, yeah, to comply it's, with I mean, KYC it's such a complex. It's such a complex process. You, it, like banks, like they're not doing their own KYC. You you work with a qualified like yeah. KYC partner. So like you know, um, I'm, <laughs> like this is not OKX are going to take the heat for this, right? But you know, this is Jumio that uh, is getting bypassed here. 
<clears throat> yeah, and even Jumio, if if you there's a bunch of interesting Twitter exchanges between uh, the journalist and Jumio and, and OKX, and um, I, I I feel for them to a certain extent because something like this is it's actually hard yeah. to design for. Um, and, and in fact, cybersecurity researchers have f- also found instances of OnlyFake being used to, you know, open bank accounts with traditional banking institutions. So this is surely that's not, like surely not in TradFi. <laughs> surely it's only crypto that are the evil ones, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, so, you can, I, I don't know if you saw, I'm sorry to take us on a slight tangent here. I don't know if you saw this whole um piece around uh the mexico remittances stuff that's been going on where um the the tldr is mexico have seen unprecedented levels of inflows from the u.s um under uh being categorized as remittances right and there's been a lot of digging into this because in a huge concentration of all of these remittances over the past year uh, were coming from Minnesota, known for its enormous Mexican population, <laughs> of course, right? And, uh, and it was, and it was literally in like a single month, like several billion dollars. Um, oh my gosh! And and I think across all of Minnesota, there was like two hundred thousand Mexicans, which actually surprised me that there was even that many in Minnesota. But uh, <laughs> it it, it kind of worked out that every single um, Mexican in Minnesota would have had to have been sending home more than two thousand uh, dollars every um, every week back to to Mexico, <laughs> right? In just pure remittances, right? So, oh my gosh, um, it's a South Park episode in the making. It, it really <laughs> is. It really is. And uh, uh, and then this was kind of published about Minnesota, and then the next month the remittances dropped by like eighty percent. It was just like absurd. <laughs> so, and and it's all going through the traditional banking system. And mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work out what the analysts have figured out is that this is uh, drug cartels that are laundering money through our absolutely rock solid traditional finance system. Uh, so you know, uh, just to just to just to give us a little extra uh, bit of spice there, because um, I'm I'm sure that uh, this is the first case of of banks, real banks, not crypto, being used for money laundering like this. Um, and is literally one of the primary contributors to the rally in the uh, the Mexican peso. So that's um, uh, wow, pretty, amazing. Yeah, it's pretty nice uh, for them. So, which which they're all shouting about how amazing this is that their economy and the in particular the peso is doing so well. So yeah, honestly worth digging into that. I went down a map like the Financial Times released a big like deep dive into this, which is really interesting in itself. Um, worth digging into. Sorry, yeah, Austin. So... <laughs> Back to faking IDs. Let's let's do it. <laughs> wow, um, what a, what a story. So, uh, yeah, to your point, uh, it, TradFi, of course, is subject to this as well. It's interesting to see how it works its way through crypto, but really, the underlying technology is for uh, this uh, this only fake service. It's actually pretty simple AI that's just being used in a sophisticated way. There's a couple different ways that it that this may have been created. We don't actually know, uh, but it's most likely one of two things. One, 
would be that it uses something called a generative adversarial network, or a GAN, a GAN, which is essentially a neural network that is optimized to deceive another neural network, in this case, the one used by verification services well, this like this is Junio. meta, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, is... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and so its role is to deceive that Jumio's neural network that is built to detect fake and illegal identities. So basically what you have is an identity verification service. They build a neural network that its purpose is to look at IDs, look at uh, personally identifiable information, verify that it looks legit basically because they don't have a way to like actually as far as i understand like there's no api or, or database that these services right. can go to to like officially reference this say with like the government or something like that they have to go mm -hmm. based off of I ids and pii that they request and verify that it looks uh correct cer certifiable accurate however you want to put it and that's a neural network that's at least doing the first step of that before there might be an escalation to some form of human verification. Well, what's happening here is just another neural network is being created to deceive the first neural network. Um, and so what, what I find to be really interesting about that is that basically you're just saying, you know, hey, let's create a smarter neural network that knows what the, the you know, what the good neural network is going to be looking for. But the more that these networks interact with each other, they're actually training themselves. So with every interaction, yeah. both networks evolve and they get better at making and detecting fakes. So it's like the proverbial like brain infinite... just swells. <laughs> yeah. It's just like an infinite battle of efficiency. Like, and yeah, yeah it's that. Yeah. This is, this is like, uh the movie inception a little bit when i'd like to start thinking <laughs> about this um but oof, yeah this is uh yeah so that's the first potential uh way that something like only fake is built the other potential approach could be that they used a diffusion based model with a right. huge curated data set of real ids so basically what's happening here is you're just gathering as many idea ids as much personally identifiable information as possible, cramming it into a database to build a model that can create realistic images and identities by basically training on this vast data set of existing images and identities. So which basically is, which the is model, really not that sophisticated, right? No, like, I mean, this is like, just a like training set. AI 101. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's the most basic approach. But basically what it's doing is it's learning to replicate these minute details that make the fakes nearly indistinguishable from authentic documents. So all of this is to say uh, only fake is able to deceive and in, in many instances even overcome these sophisticated systems. But the underlying technology is actually pretty basic. It's just being used in a sophisticated way. Why does that matter? Because it means that it's pretty widely accessible, applicable, usable. Um, it's not some type of like black hat magic um, or, or cryptography or, or really, really advanced thing that's happening here. It's just a, a creative application of a relatively basic technology. So that brings us to, of course, the most important question, which is, should you use this thing? <laughs> oh, this, uh, you, you ever seen the, uh, you know, the, um, 
the the chart, the fuck around and find out chart. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you, it, this for me falls in the territory of this. Seems really yeah. interesting. Maybe I play around. You know, you fuck around here, you are gonna find out, and you are not gonna want to find out what happens after that. Yeah, this is up in that uh, upper right hand quadrant there. Oh on yeah, the Sappho chart. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So. In short, the answer here is no. You probably should not use this. Uh, Matt and I have been... Uh, we, we've been through multiple cycles of these types of technology, I would say, at least covering this type of technology. And, yeah, not, uh, not building, just to clarify. Not, not building <laughs> or using it, yeah. Um, but we have seen similar gray area services run for months, if not years, mm-hmm. in the past, only to be shut down, in some cases going as far as using sanctions, like remember Tornado Cash? Oh yeah, um, we did a big episode on that one, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a gnarly one, still ongoing. Uh, they have their creators imprisoned, their user assets frozen. It can get really, really bad really, really fast. So what may seem like a low-key, under-the-radar, scrappy service uh, that, that could run for months, if not years, can soon blow up and become a really big problem for people that have been using the service that will end up being held accountable to it, even if they didn't fully understand the implications. So I would exercise caution in this case. I would not use something like this. This seems like a good way to land an identity fraud or money laundering charge. Which is (laughs) Um, well up there in some of the largest sentencing times that you will experience. You would much rather, from a purely sentencing perspective, murder someone than get charged with, <laughs> with some of these. Uh, not not to encourage uh, people going out and murdering, but let me tell you something. You get done for white-collar crimes, and you are absolutely in the top quadrant <laughs> of the FAFO chart. <laughs> yeah, don't don't mess with the government and its money, I guess. But uh, absolutely, kill all the people you want. <laughs> you know, just don't fuck around with our money. That's that's the uh, that's good old capitalism. <laughs> all right, so here's here's another another component of this. There's really no way to tell what's happening with your data. Remember earlier we talked about this was a Telegram channel, and I I don't want to use the meme that like you know Telegram is some seedy underground thing. Obviously. It's not. It's a wonderful service. Just like anything else, it's an open platform. There's going to be good things and bad things on it. Just because only fake is on there doesn't mean it's inherently bad. But what it does mean is that you don't really have much transparency into the creator of only fake, the developers behind it. There's no real information on them. The the creator calls himself John Wick. Okay. Uh, John Wick that could sounds be legit. A, yeah. <laughs> Uh, they could be keeping a list of users and their data. You don't know. Also, because it's run through Telegram, depending on how your account is configured, that exchange could be traced back via your phone number. So when you're interacting w- you know, with these things through various platforms, of course, there's ways to uh, intercept your information and your data. So exercise uh, caution. I wouldn't use something like this. Also, it's worth noting, actually, right now, you can't even use it if you want to, because after this report was released, uh, OnlyFake went offline. They're probably relocating. They'll probably spin up another account. Um, but that is the current status. Now, regardless of whether or not you should use it, this does pose the question that keeps getting posed, which is what are we going to be doing about identity verification as these 
large neural networks and AI become more and more powerful and mainstream and accessible. Identity verification measures are going to need to be strengthened, if not completely reinvented, I think. Um, there, the CTO of Satoshi Pay, Torsten Stuber, had a, a, a nice tweet a couple days ago where he said, quote, KYC's downfall was inevitable with AI now crafting fake IDs that breeze through verifications. It's time for a shift. If rigorous regulation is a must, Governments need to ditch outdated bureaucracy for cryptographic tech, enabling secure third-party identity verification. So some type of a solution is going to have to be arrived at to a, a address these evolving problems. And, and the key word there, Matt, I think being evolving. The technology yeah. will continue to evolve, and the approach in addressing that is going to have to continue to evolve as well. I, I should note, however... This isn't really a widespread issue yet. OnlyFake only had 600 users on Telegram. This isn't like mm. some huge thing that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are like creating fake bank accounts and, and <laughs> overcoming KYC and AML. No, it's nowhere near that scale. It's really just an interesting tech problem that will continue to persist in the future that right now I think doesn't really have huge widespread implications and consequences but if left unchecked definitely could down the line i think this creates a huge opportunity for someone to create a microchip that you embed into your forehead where that you can bash your head off the screen uh as like an <laughs> nfc type chip that verifies your identity uh which would the nice thing about that is it talking about actually, WorldCoin? Yeah, it would just mimic the same experience you have going through KYC today, um, <laughs> except the the bashing of your head would actually result in a positive outcome. So, you know, if any venture capitalists are listening right now, I will be accepting early angel checks into this uh, idea. And yeah, we'll, we'll see you then. I'm sure there'll be uh, an emerging kind of market for new computer monitors as well as they, they progressively get destroyed. All right, let's jump into our last story of the day. Ethereum's much-anticipated Denkin upgrade has reached the final stages of testing. So it's, uh, it's gone live on the Haleski testnet. That is the last kind of stage in, in the process, really, of testing. And it paves the way for the Denkin upgrade to hit the uh, Ethereum mainnet in late Feb or maybe early March. What is it? Well, it's, uh, it's a pretty key upgrade. And it's the, the starting point that um, it's introducing proto-dank sharding, which was part of the um, EIP-4844. Um, so you may have heard a little bit about this. You may have heard about dank sharding, but the net net of this is it's going to significantly reduce the cost of data availability on the Ethereum layer one, which is where data availability is, is managed. And that <coughs> data availability is which uh, is is what accounts for a, somewhere in the region of like eighty to ninety percent of the fees that all of the layer two roll-ups pay to actually like post data onto Ethereum layer ones. So why is this good? Well, it means that things are gonna get way cheaper for the uh, for the layer two roll-ups. So the optimisms, the arbitrums, the ZK syncs, et cetera, of, of the world, right? And <clears throat> so 
that the primary innovation that's coming with protodynamic sharding is the introduction of blobs. Uh, as always, uh, what feels like a very apt, highly technical name. Um, but the <laughs> uh, so so I, I, it will definitely make for good memes, at least. Um, but you know, blobs are important because they 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 really dr- actually quite dramatically expand the amount of data that each Ethereum block can hold. I feel like we're going back to the the 2017 Bitcoin block size wars here, but like uh, it, it increases the block size by around about 10%. That's important because why? Well, you can fit more transactions in a block, um, <clears throat> which means processing times can increase and costs uh, reduce. So under protodank sharding, they'll be able to carry close, close to one megabyte of, um, of data per Ethereum block, which is up from, it varies per block, but it's usually in and around the like 50 to 100 kilobytes. This is the reason why data availability fees are expected to come down for rollups because they can, you know, fit more transactions uh, in uh, each time they post up into the Ethereum L1, which is great. This is a important milestone, but ultimately a stepping stone towards like full dank sharding, which has been talked about for what feels like years was kind of put on pause a little bit which um and then has been revisited um and and ultimately without going into too much detail focuses much more on like uh data availability sampling uh, and this would actually further increase the block size by a much larger amount it would it would increase capacity up to like 15 16 megabytes we are still a little way away from that yet um but Protodank sharding is super important. It's a huge step forward. And it comes during all of the hype that we're going through at the moment around like uh, modular blockchain scaling. And this has been born out of the persistent problem that fees remain really expensive during, you know, we had this whole layer two roll up narrative where it's like, great, we've got all these layer twos now. It's way cheaper to use Ethereum. We're not paying like 200 bucks at peak times for some gas fees, which is literally what was happening in 2021. Now we only pay like a fraction of a cent. And then, you know, what we start to see is as things really ramped up and activity ramped up on these layer twos, the fees increased dramatically. And we have the same problem, not quite at the same scale, but still the same problem. Um, and then, so born out of that was where we've seen some innovative solutions. EIP-4844, protodank sharding is one of them, like actually managed by the Ethereum team. But then you've seen a modular solution, which aims to take, instead of actually managing data availability on Ethereum, on the Ethereum layer one, we kind of pull that out and manage it elsewhere. And that's where you've seen projects like Celestia that have been very, very popular. And now EigenDA, one of the first ABSs that is going to be launched by EigenLayer that are attempting to do this, which actually could could result in even better outcomes than protodank sharding. These are all solutions in place until we get to the stage, I think, of like full dank sharding, but it's a long way away and and we, we, we can't wait. And this is what's for users, you know, this is going to mean lower gas fees, Great, we need that for adoption. For Ethereum, it means an enormous step forward in scaling 
transaction throughput and like actually just thinking about how we scale as Ethereum onboards more and more and more and more and more new users. Lots to be excited about. We already went through one phase of like, you know, the layer two explosion. Strap yourself in for this that's like supercharged, the roll up uh, layer two explosion where I think, you know, in a few years time, we're going to see thousands you know, maybe tens of thousands of layer two rollups that are that are that are building up and posting up onto Ethereum layer one. If the majority of what I just said went largely over your head, all you need to take away from this is Ethereum fee number goes down. Users <laughs> go up. That's good. This is good for Ethereum. And uh that's the main takeaway from this. This is an important part of scaling Ethereum. And, you know, there's a lot to be really excited about, in my opinion, on the in the whole Ethereum ecosystem. Um, if you didn't listen to our episode that we shared yesterday with um, Mike from Etherfy, which is talking specifically around restaking, which is all focused on Eigenlayer and is going to help with solving some of these problems through that EigenDA, Go and give that a listen as well, because I think there's a lot of exciting innovation happening in ETH and Bitcoin as well, which is great. Um, and this is a, an important milestone. So yeah, this plus ETH ETF, maybe one day soon, staked ETH ETF, and everyone is going to be able to purchase with their fake IDs that they process through OnlyFake. And <laughs> we, we have mass adoption. That's how it works, right, Austin? Absolutely. Number go up. Here we go. Late Feb, <laughs> early March. <laughs> <laughs> well, s- strap yourselves in, everyone, because it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We are not far away from the Bitcoin halving as well. Oh, I am I so wait. excited about that. Um, there's there's a lot to be excited about. It feels like you know today, yesterday, we had a little bit of a brief rally. Maybe that will crush our dreams in a couple of days. Maybe not. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but yeah, lots to be excited about. As always, Austin, we'll be we'll be here covering all the latest and greatest. It's been a pleasure, and I'll see you next week. Talk to you then, Matt. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.